be seated. So if I started out with an intro on Goodfellas, you wouldn't be surprised, but I'm going to disappoint you, even though Ray Liotta died last month. This episode, though, is a little short, right? Okay? It's, it's just a few verses, right? Five verses. It's a, the words punch above their weight, which is an interesting phrase, right? Because it uh, describes something like, a, like in a boxing scenario, say that I was come up against Steve Saxbold and I was able to defeat him, I would be punching above my weight. Sorry, buddy. I would never come up against you. Okay, because I'm like smaller, right? Okay, you punch above, but you can also refer to business, right? Uh, a small, uh, feisty startup that, that conquers the, the big guy on the block or, or dating, dating. How in the world did he get her? Yes, punching above your weight or sports or anytime the talent is C, which I'm very familiar with, but the effort is A. I'm, I'm more of a talent to see, effort is C kind of guy, but you get the idea, right? Punching above your weight. A manifesto is a written statement publicly declaring intentions, motives, or views of an issuer. So says our friends at Merriman Webster. You might think of a manifesto in terms of the Declaration of Independence. Um, Common Sense by Tom and Paine. For those of you that are a little left to center, the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, the Sermon on the Mount. Be hard-pressed to say the Sermon on the Mount is not a manifesto. A couple of lesser-known manifestos, Advice on Using Docking Lights. <laughs> please, please, please. If you have a pontoon, if you have a boat that has docking lights, they are not navigational aids. They're, they're only to be used when you're within 10 yards of your dock. If you have your docking lights on and you're running across a lake, you look stupid. <laughs> and you are stupid. That would be the definition of a manifesto. I'm not saying that any of those things. Another manifesto by John Just is guidance on no wake zones, okay, between gull and upper gull, okay? Here's another manifesto. If you go by me and I'm in my pontoon and I'm closed throttle, closed throttle literally means the smallest amount of gas you can apply to do forward, okay, that's no wake, okay? If you go by me and there is white water curling at your bow, and I know you, and then you pretend not to know me, I see you. I see you in your surf boat. I see you focus straight ahead. You're like, oh. I wasn't even going to Zorba's. I didn't care. You could have the last docking spot. It's okay. This would be another example of a manifesto. Typically, they have passion about them. Manifesto is related to manifest. It occurs in the English as a noun, a verb, an adjective. It's something that is readily perceived by the census. Senses, and it dates in its English usage to the 14th century. Derived from a Latin word, blah, 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 blah. A manifesto, a confession of what is true or what I want to be true. A manifesto, something that is obvious or has been made obvious. Verse 19 of 5 that we will read today, chapter 2, 411, 411. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's palace. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, 
as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Esther's doing her thing. She's finding favor. She's enjoying favor. She is loving being underestimated. She's listening. This, this notion of obedience. And here's where the, 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 the few verses, the short episode, punch above their weight, right? There is integrity built in these short stories, right? In the behavior we find a person worthy of listening to and sticking with it, right? It's a throwaway phrase, right? How, how Esther is described, it's a throwaway. You're just like, oh yeah, she was a good kid, you know? She was a, she was a good kid. Of course, someone will continue to trust the person who's exhibited parental influence in their life, right? Except the answer is no, right? <laughs> If you look at the history of the people of God, the reason why they're in God, in exile, is because the sons of kings, starting with the first king, second king, David, and his son, they repeatedly do their own thing. So obedience isn't something that is assumed. Obedience isn't something that just, just happens. People are like, oh, you're talking about Solomon. He was one of the wisest men who ever lived. True. But look at how he ended his life. 1 Kings 11.6, for those of you that are Old Testament scholars, he didn't end well. So even among the people of God, chosen by God to be kings, there are no guarantees. And I think in this short throwaway phrase, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. We find this notion that Mordecai is wise and Esther is wise. And that Esther has made the jump that most parents hope their children make. The transition from basic German shepherd, go sit, stay, to willingly being obedient. To obey. If I obey you, it's because I trust you. If I obey you, it's because I think you will act in my best interests. Sometimes we have trouble with obedience, right? Because the person who is demanding our obedience, we view them as not acting in our best interests. We view them as, if you demand obedience before I trust you, it's really, really hard for me to obey And so if I'm going to obey someone, I want to make sure I can trust them. If I, if I trust someone, I think that they will act in my best interests. Esther obeys. Esther is following something. She is being obedient. I follow what is being asked of me when I trust, when I think that you'll act in my best interests. Now, to begin with, she has to, right? Basic German shepherd, every child, you know, a two-year-old. You pick them up, you put them down, right? There's, there, there's no way you can't. I mean, it's kind of like the, the, the law of gravity. You have to obey the law of gravity. We used to say a thing when we were rock climbing on the North Shore, place thy protection well, unless the ground rise up and smite thee. 
obey the law of gravity. You don't have a choice. And some of us find obedience very easy. Most of us find obedience very hard. It's a choice, and sometimes it's selective, right? I choose to be obedient here, but maybe not here. And then how do I employ my obedience? Some people are just like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do, and that will be easier. But I don't know that that's always successful, and I don't know that that's the tale of obedience that exists in the book of Esther. I think what we find in these two individuals, Esther and Mordecai, who anchor this idea of wisdom is that they are able to decide, determine what things are worthy of their obedience, what things are worthy of their followership. The text goes on. Trouble in the city known as Susa the citadel. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, I love these names, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, notice the change, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. A plot to take out the king, two eunuchs get sideways with King Headache, big then Teresh, like T-Rex, Teresh. Great names in English. Tomasino, our friend, our commentator who's helping us, doesn't call out their names for humor, but I will. T-Resh, T-Rex, okay, maybe the king picked on him for having short arms. (laughs) I don't know. Jokes. The threshold, they guarded the threshold, right? The entrance to the palace or the throne room or private residence in space, a place where the king travels through frequently and needed to be guarded. They're angry. They're going against the king. It's a bold move. Civil disobedience. That doesn't work out. Spoiler alert. Mordecai sniffs it out. So many questions, right? I want to know so many things about, okay, so how does Mordecai function in this, okay? Is he just on his own? Does he have a, a team of individuals that he works with? I mean, is, is he kind of a mole, like a guacamole, or does he have a network of agents? And, and why does he even care about a king who is keeping his people in exile, who has forcibly removed his daughter from his care and custody and brought her into this Persian harem, put a crown on her head, and called her queen? Does he view the king as an ally? Or does he view this as an opportunity for Esther to further her influence? The text tells us none of these things. Could he have sat this one out? I don't know, maybe. He didn't. Was there a risk to him? Why did he do what he did? What was the motivation? What was he thinking? It's obvious, as the story plays out over the weeks ahead, that Mordecai has this interior sense, right, of of what's right, of of what's wrong, the places to to make a stand. And, And this cat is an interesting mix, right? 
Because here, in these short verses, we have civil obedience, defending the life of the king. And in just a few short verses, we'll have civil disobedience. We see the one here, and the other one will come next week. And the question, right, is how do you know? How do you know when to take a stand? I mean, how do you go like, here's where I'm going to die. This is the hill that I'm going to die on. Here's the hill that I'm not going to die on. I'm going to get away from this hill. How do you know? How do you make these decisions? Life is complex. He has this willingness to comply on one hand, and then he's fiercely independent on another one. Let's get the info to the queen. Queen Esther, better than Vashti? Probably. Vashti might have let the plot run out. Why get in the way of a good idea, Vashti might have said. Echoes Ruth Graham's quote. Have you heard about this one? Okay, she's now passed, as is Billy. Was asked about her marriage to Billy Graham, the great evangelist, okay? Millions upon millions of people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of Billy Graham. Asked about her marriage. You know the quote, right? Have you ever thought about divorce? Ruth Graham says, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. <laughs> I love that. It's so perfect. Tanya's like, yes. <laughs> and here's what happens. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be true, the men were both hanged on the gallows. They hung them. Could have also impaled them. This would have been a little bit more dramatic. Could have crucified them, but, but probably most likely, and the one that's most gruesome that sticks in my brain that's most visual is just literally a spike, okay? Like take, uh, I don't know, what's that? A 12-inch chunk of wood, sharpen it on one end, and literally, and then you just leave them there. They're dead. And it's not a pretty death. It's, it's pretty quick, but relatively painful. It's visible, it's tangible, it's conclusive. It's an image that would sear into anyone's mind. Here's what will happen to you if you engage in civil disobedience in Susa the Citadel. One might argue it would put a damper on dissent. And the official record, right? And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Doesn't seem like much. Another phrase that punches above its weight, but will figure profoundly in the twists and turns of the story. It's a phrase that that will, will invite something that is so good, so ironic, so schadenfreude, that you couldn't possibly make it up. It's just, it just tickles the funny bone in a weird sort of way. The book of Esther revolves around this idea, right? People who are supposed to have wisdom that don't have wisdom, okay? And then the people who are the exiles, who are the immigrants who have been taken from their land and now are the descendants of those initial folk who possess the wisdom. What does it mean to be wise? 
In the story, sometimes wisdom demands obedience. And sometimes wisdom demands disobedience. I think sometimes it would be wise if we learned obedience. Would it also be wise to teach disobedience? Would it be wise to teach disobedience to the wrong things? Would it be wise to teach obedience to the right things? Would it be right to teach disobedience to the wrong people, to the wrong ideas? Would it be right to teach obedience to the to the right people and the right ideas. And what do we obey? What do we trust? What do we put our followership in? Is is it myself? Or is it something external to me? And if it's something external to me, is it temporal or is it eternal? If it's something external to me, can it still be deeply held right here? Can I be obedient to the person God wants me to be? Can I be obedient to the person God wants me to become? Can I be disobedient to the person that I am? And can I be disobedient to the chains of the past? What does obedience look like in our lives? What does disobedience look like in our lives? And what is wisdom? What if we create a manifesto? Probably won't be remembered by many people in history. probably won't rank with stuff that Thomas Paine wrote. But what if we worked individually on a wisdom manifesto? Declarations of things that were true, uh, confessions, things that should be obvious, things that are important to us. What is wisdom and what would it look like in our lives? Where would you start? Giving you a task, manifesto on wisdom. What would you do? What would you start with first? Some people who like Proverbs would start, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Man, I agree. I got you on that one. It's just that a lot of people who, don't, who quote that verse really don't believe it. So if you're going to quote that verse, then we should believe it. And while that's super important, I, I kind of want to start with a little more introspection because I know people who know that proverb who are not wise. And I think for me, my manifesto would start off with, I'm not not wise. I think my manifesto would start off with, I'm not wise. I think my manifesto would start off with, I'm broken. I think my manifesto would also include into it. And here where it gets tricky, right? Because this is less of a statement and more of a question. Am I willing to be obedient? 
Am I willing to be disobedient? And maybe one more for this week. Am I willing to let an outside voice, a Mordecai, speak into my existence? Because it seems like in this story, wisdom has a mentor. And wisdom has the ability to listen to a mentor. How about you? What would you do? A manifesto on wisdom. Something, something that was true about you. Either, either, either descriptive of where you are at or, or hopeful for where you want to be. What would you include? Can you rise to the challenge? We, we put these things out there. We, we encourage, right? Be, because we've often said the biggest obstacle to this formation of, of God in our lives is us. Are we willing to allow the unseen power in the book of Esther access to our lives? Maybe I want to rewrite my manifesto and just start there. Father, I want your unseen power at work in my life. Jesus, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my provider. I want your unseen power at work in my life. What would you include in your wisdom manifesto? Please pray with me. Father, we come to you today. What does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to follow? What does it mean to trust? What does it mean to be obedient? What does it mean to be disobedient? I pray, O oh great God, by the power of your Spirit speaking into our lives individually and corporately, we will ignore the notorious, unpredictable self and embrace you, the unseen power in the book of Esther. Father, thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.